0: I'm Steph. And I'm Drew. And you're listening to Spirited Spirits. Tonight, we are continuing on with our series on real haunted houses. We had started this series um, back in the fall Mm -hmm. and had featured a couple different um, haunted, purported haunted houses. And, yeah, I wanted to get back into it because we kind of deviated from it, and that's okay. Like, I think it's fine to just, like... Right, to break things up a little bit. Yeah, and talk about different things. But this one in particular, um, it's really fascinated me since... I was younger since I first saw the movie in middle school. Um, it's, you know, got a true crime aspect and a haunting. Mm-hmm. And of course I'm talking about the Amityville horror.
1: Right. Didn't they prove that story was made up or something? by the, the
0: No, actually they haven't been able to prove that at all. Um, now the story certainly has been exaggerated by Hollywood. Why, of course. <laughs> Especially in the most recent remake, what 2015, starring Ryan Reynolds. I liked that movie until I finally read the book by Jay Anson, and watched some other stuff, and realized it just doesn't actually follow the events that are detailed in the book in any way, shape, or form. Like it, it definitely takes a lot of liberties. Um, with the storyline so in fact the 1979 movie is more closely aligned to the book but it's still sensationalized so I wanted to detail the truth quote-unquote based on what was actually written in the book and discussed by those involved in various ways so to prepare for this episode I read the book the Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, And I watched a couple different documentaries. One is called Shock Docs, The Amityville House, which is available on Hulu. The other is called The Real Amityville Horror. I found that one on YouTube. Um, and I had seen another documentary that I'm going to refer to later on um, at the end. But um, I just did a lot of research, as much as I could possibly find, about the DeFail murders and the hauntings. Um, because, you know, there is a lot of information out there. And even if you don't believe the less as paranormal happenings, you can't deny that an entire family was murdered, except for one son who was later convicted of the crime. Right. I mean, that really did happen in the home. Right. I mean, there were police files, court documents, interviews. I believe that this kind of horrific crime, these murders, they leave imprints on locations. Well, we've
1: talked about that before, like in right. Waverly. Right. About how places that have a huge trauma, right, like they leave, there's some type of stain left.
0: Yeah, the Velisca Axe murders. Right. Lizzie Borden's house. I mean, these places are haunted because I believe people were violently murdered there and whether it's residual energy or what, it's it's frightening. But, now, let's before we actually officially start talking about the Amityville horror, let's let people know what we're drinking tonight. We're kind of keeping it simple. <laughs> a beer. Yeah. We, so um, we instead of doing a cocktail, we decided um, we're actually recording this during the day on a weekend. Um, so we are like, let's just drink a beer, and we right. had some Halloween like pumpkin ales. Right. What are you um, drinking? Which one? are you So eating? I've got Mad Tree um, Pumpkin Spiced Ale,
1: and I'm drinking. One of the best pumpkin beers of all time is called Southern Tear, and it's called War- Warlock, and it's Imperial Pumpkin Stout. Yeah. And let me tell you, it is
0: awesome. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's just a little too heavy for me, especially mm. during the day, so. Right. Okay, so let's begin with the murders. On the night of November thirteenth, 1974, six family members of the DeFeo family were shot to death in their home at 112... Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. The killer used a high-powered rifle to shoot each victim at point-blank range in the back or in the back of the head as they lie face down in their beds. The six victims were Ronald DeFeo Sr., age 43, his wife Louise, age 43, and their four children, Dawn, age 18, Allison, age 13, Mark, age 12, and John, age 9. Now, the only survivor was the oldest son, Ronald, or he went by Butch DeFeo Jr., age 23 at the time. He had run into Henry's bar and began screaming that his parents had been shot. A small group of people went to the home and found the bodies, including Ronald's friend, Joe, who called the Sulphic County Police Department to report the crime. Ronald was taken into custody by the police and it was a, it, he was taken in because he was claiming that there was a mob hit against his family. So initially they were, like, trying to protect him, quote-unquote. But they soon came to believe that he was actually a suspect.
1: Oh, okay. That's interesting. I didn't know about the mob hit.
0: Yeah, that was his first story. Okay. So Ronald told many stories about what happened that night. At one point, he tried to implicate his sister Dawn claiming that they had planned to kill their parents together. But when the time came to do it, he was too high to go through with it. So she shot everyone, and then he shot her, discovering what she had done. Like, after discovering what she had done, he he was like, what did you do? And there was, like, a struggle, and he shot her. Now, his grandfather came to see him when he was at the police station, and he told Ronald, stop making up these stories about your sister. Quit blaming your dead sister and confess to what you've done. And so it was then that Ronald admitted to murdering his entire family. He later claimed he had no control over what he was doing. He said a hooded figure handed him the gun and he just went methodically through the house shooting everyone. He shot his parents twice and each sibling once. He claimed to have heard voices and his lawyer William Weber mounted an affirmative defense of insanity but a psychiatrist for the prosecution explained that, despite Ronald's drug use and antisocial personality disorder, he was aware of what he was doing at the time of the crime. On November 21st, 1975, Ronald was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced 25 to life in prison for murdering his six family members. Now, a few weird things I wanted to highlight about this case. First of all, every member of the family was found lying face down in their beds, having been shot from behind. There were no signs of struggle. But the interesting is, the interesting thing here is that the high-powered rifle he used, which was a 35 caliber lever action marlin 336c rifle i have no Uh, idea what kind of gun that is i'm not a gun guy i wouldn't
1: i don't even
0: know yeah but apparently it would have been very loud loud enough to wake up the family members right so that would have surely like someone would have struggled Right.
1: right right that's odd
0: but also it should have been loud enough to wake the neighbors yet no one reported hearing gunshots there was no silencer on the gun So how is it that no one woke up and tried to escape or tried to stop him?
1: Okay, so did he drug them?
0: No. Detectives have not been able to find any evidence. The coroner couldn't find any drugs or sedatives in their system.
1: And I know this is really morbid to think about, but I know from movies, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes you can use a pillow as like a silencer. Like you put like a pillow and a gun.
0: I don't think that they believe that was the case.
1: But also... They were laying
0: on the pillows.
1: Well, he could have had like an extra pillow, like he puts over their head and then shoots them. I
0: suppose. But that <clears that <clears they were like... all
1: laying face down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's like every single person was sleeping face down. Yes. See, that's odd to me too. Mm-hmm.
0: Because
1: why, I mean, I sleep on my, sometimes face down, face up,
0: mm-hmm. you left move right. around a bit, yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So why is everyone face down? That's why I'm at.
0: I don't know. This is what I'm telling you is an interesting piece of the puzzle here. Like, I
1: still am wondering if they were dropped.
0: There was no evidence. None. Hmm. Whatsoever.
1: At the time.
0: Like. Also, I wanted to point out, a neighbor said he actually heard a dog barking that night, but didn't hear gunshots. Hmm. So, how is that possible?
1: Um... <laughs> Could he have killed them somewhere else and moved them back in? Oh,
0: no. There was no evidence of that.
1: I don't know. Let's move on. Okay. Because I don't know.
0: (laughs) So let's talk a bit about the house at 112 Ocean Avenue. Built in 1928, the Dutch colonial three-story house has six bedrooms, a heated pool, and a boathouse. A previous owner named the house High Hopes and a sign out front greeted visitors to the property. The house was everything newlyweds George and Kathy Lutz were hoping for. Originally of Deer Park, George Lutz, age 28, and Kathy, age 30, were looking for a new home for their blended family. The couple had three children, Daniel, age 9, Christopher, age 7, and Missy, age 5. These were Kathy's children from a previous marriage, but George seemed to get along well with the kids prior to them moving to Amityville. So the house had been on the market for almost a year, when Kathy and George purchased it for just eighty thousand dollars in December of nineteen seventy-five. That's crazy. Of course, you know it's seventy-five. So (laughs) I know, but But, it's
1: just crazy to think how
0: I know compared to what home prices home prices are now.
1: Yeah.
0: So as part of the deal, the home came fully furnished, meaning the DeFeo's bedroom furniture, the furniture they died in, was left behind for the Lutzes to use. Now, I believe it was the beds, right, the bed frames, and not the actual mattresses, because that would be disgusting. Um, But in addition to the bed frames, they got the DeFeo's dining room furniture, TV chair, and appliances.
1: So, okay, so all that furniture Mm -hmm. is left behind. Did they, and I know it's, because we watched the 2000, it's actually 2005, not 2015. Oh, okay. uh, Amenville Horror. um, And, you know, they find out... That as they're buying the place, that they have to do like a full disclosure, like a family was murdered here, blah, blah, blah. Did they know? Yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. The couple did know about the murders at the home and they discussed it a bit with the children. I guess they wanted to be honest with the kids prior to moving in and and let them know. They all
1: knew that this furniture was the same furniture, including the beds that these people were shot in, that they were going to be sleeping in.
0: I think that where they had been living before, it was a smaller area Mm -hmm. or a smaller home. And so they needed the additional furniture and they could get it through the estate (laughs) and it was going to be easier and cheaper than trying to buy. All right. (laughs) That's all I understand from it, but based on what I read. Now, a friend of theirs recommended because they were moving into the home where these people were murdered that they should have the house blessed by a priest just to make sure, no bad energy, you know. So that's what they did. They called their priest friend named Father Frank Mancuso in the book, although his real name was later revealed to be Father Ralph Picaro. Per- Picario? Picario. Yeah, that sounds right. And he promised to come out and bless the home. Now, here's where things get a little bit questionable. In the book, Father Mancuso is sprinkling holy water in the sewing room when he hears someone behind him yell, Get out! He turns around and finds no one there. He then finishes his blessing, thanks the Lutzes for their hospitality. They had offered to actually have him for dinner as well, but he he already had plans. And he drives to his mother's house to have dinner with her. That was the plans. No flies attacked him, as it's depicted in the movies.
1: Well, I think, the wasn't the fly thing kind of also, I forgot what came out first. I'm pretty sure Exorcist came out first, right?
0: Yes. That sounds right.
1: Okay. So I'm kind of wondering if like that was a kind of thing. Yeah. I, Is well, there
0: flies in the No, there's there's flies in the book too. Oh there I just are? haven't gotten to that part. Oh, okay. It. Never mind. It's just they combined the two essentially and made uh, it a bigger deal. They exaggerated. Oh, okay. In the movies. Got it, of course. Okay. Okay, so he goes to his mom's house. This is the priest. He goes to his mom's house to have dinner with her. And she's like, oh, my gosh, what? go go look in the mirror. Are you okay? And he goes to the bathroom, and he sees it looks like he has, like, black circles under, under his eyes. And then as he's driving home, his car starts to act up, and the hood flies open on the expressway, and he has to, like, pull over. and.
1: Real quick, I've seen that happen, like, where the hood
0: just goes flying me up. Me and
1: my friend were driving somewhere and next to us, the car, the hood like flew up. Oh God. It was the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, I Cause mean, you can't see. Well, yeah. And we were right beside them. Yeah. So like they're starting to swerve off the, the road. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the priest, he begins feeling sick. Okay. He, this is after he leaves his mother's house. He's driving home. You know, the the hood flies open. He gets home. He starts feeling sick. He starts developing a high fever, body chills, red and painful blisters on his hands. And he try, when he tries to call the Lutzes to warn them, because he gets this feeling of dread, like there's something going on here. But every time he tries to call them, there's static interference. It's like he can't, the connection won't be made on the phone. At least this is what's detailed in the book. Now, Father Picaro. Piccar- was interviewed on the TV show In Search Of, and he claims he was also smacked by the entity. That's not in the book. This hmm. is just what he said in the interview. However, he then later, in an affidavit, he later says that he never actually visited the home. What? He only spoke to them on the phone. He only ever spoke to the lessons on the phone. Oh, it's so... A... So the priest hasn't really kept his story here like he's not he's told
1: you're you're telling me a religious person like a priest lied
0: i'm just saying i don't (laughs) i don't know i'm just saying so going back to the flies that you know we mentioned the couple claimed to find hundreds of flies in the sewing room so in the room that the priest had blessed they do later go in and they find hundreds of flies in the window
1: but from what we're saying here is that priest didn't actually it wasn't to... the priest
0: who was yeah okay like it didn't occur to it didn't yeah, happen to i know the but well, we're also
1: saying that he didn't actually go to visit the home and bless the home right
0: that is what he in an affidavit that he had to do there was like a lawsuit and he claims he never actually went to the home
1: so he actually did not bless the home is what we're saying from what he's saying in his affidavit
0: yes later on you'll see i'll get to another point there's a lot of in the book there's it switches between the lutzes and father mancuso is his name in the book right um and it kind of details both stories like there's a lot of things that happen with him and he later claims to bless the home from afar so yeah, just let me finish here, okay. and then we'll we'll get to that. Okay, so they find hundreds of flies in the window in the sewing room. They can't figure out where they're coming from, how they're getting into the home. It's December, you know, it's winter time. So they can't they can't account for why there are so many flies that time of year in the house. And then the toilet bowls also they reportedly turn black inside and smell awful
1: can i just been like a sewage backup
0: yes that's what i thought as well but they claim it was actually the porcelain oh. that turned black not the water that's weird so other details of note in the book and there's a lot here so i'm gonna go i'm gonna try and go through this fairly quickly but there's a lot of information and i wanted to make sure it got covered because there's so much misinformation and it's been exaggerated So, George and Kathy began getting easily frustrated with each other and with the children. Like I said, George seemingly got along with the children when they lived in Deer Park, but when they moved into 112 Ocean Avenue, he got more irritable and wanted to discipline the children for minor offenses. Now, this could be just because he wasn't sleeping well. He was more irritable. He was jolted awake every night at 3.15 a.m., supposedly the time the DeFeos were murdered. He heard noises and worried about the doors being locked. One night, George sees the boathouse door open and he runs out to lock it. He sees a dark figure moving in Missy's bedroom. And when he races up there to her room to check on her, he finds her sound asleep, but her rocking chair is slowly rocking back and forth. In addition to the personality changes, um, George is always cold and. Wants to constantly sit by the fireplace and stay warm by the fire. He, in fact, doesn't even help Kathy with stuff, like getting stuff ready. Like it's getting ready to be Christmas time. They need to run errands, go get the kids some gifts and stuff. He refuses to go out and do it. Sounds depressed. Yeah, I kind of, they both kind of each go through a bit of a depression. Mm -hmm. Kathy says she feels a female presence touch her, kind of embrace her, and it, it scares her at one point. She also begins to have dreams about Louise DeFeo, uh, including one of her having an affair in the room mm. with a man that isn't her husband. One night, Kathy hears Missy talking in her bedroom. She finds her daughter sitting in her rocker by the window watching the snow. She asks who Missy was talking to, and Missy says it was Jody. When her mom questions if this is a new doll she had just gotten for Christmas, Missy replies, no, Jody's a pig. He's my friend. Nobody can see him but me. Kathy's brother gets married the day after Christmas and when he stops by their house. He has $1,500 in cash in an envelope that he's going to pay the vendor, the wedding vendor. It's like the difference that he owes for that day. But the money disappears from his pocket and they search the house and they cannot find it. They've got to get to the, the wedding site. So, George has to spot him. He says, I'll write you. A che- I'll write a check, it'll be fine, and then I'll just have to move money to cover it. He has to actually move this money from his business account to cover it.
1: Okay.
0: Also, George was the best man, and he was sick the entire wedding. Had diarrhea, felt nauseous, felt awful. Kathy's Aunt Teresa visits one day, and she had previously been a nun, and she reports getting bad vibes in the house. The Lutzes then find a secret red room behind the closet in the basement. They aren't sure what it was previously used for, but they decide to use it as a pantry. But then one day, George goes into the closet and begins to smell a horrible odor. He describes it as a cloud or mist smelling like human excrement. Shit cloud? Yes, a shit cloud. <laughs> he closes the door to try to keep it from wafting out and he actually is vom- like he vomits on himself in the process.
1: So, what I've learned from horror movies is that if you find a red room in your house behind like a false door, probably means there was some cold activity.
0: Yeah, yeah. So... So, at a local bar, George is mistaken for Ronald DeFeo, Jr.
1: Oh, that's weird.
0: The bartender tells George that he resembles him because of his beard and stuff, and I guess just general look. George tells the guy that he had just moved into 112 Ocean Avenue, and the bartender claims that he once provided beer for a party there at the DeFeo's. He mentions that he knows about that hidden room in the basement, and he thought Ronnie may have performed animal sacrifices it.
1: So, okay, so part of me is like, okay, maybe Ronnie was actually doing kind of like that stuff in this red room, which opened the door for once demonic scene. activity, yeah, and and, yeah, all that stuff. Then the other thing I'm thinking is, okay, so this horrible crime happens, you know, this guy kills his entire family, and then the public starts talking and like, yeah, could... making up stories because. You know, Ronnie came. Or not, yeah, Ronnie came in there yelling that his family was dead. He was always, you know, he, he was known at the bar. Um, so I don't, I don't know.
0: Okay, well, so let's continue. Yeah. For Christmas, George got a four-foot-tall ceramic lion statue. Okay. One night, Kathy says that she saw it shift towards her a few inches. It was on like a table, and she saw it kind of shift and move towards her. Then that same night, George ends up tripping on it, so it had moved from the table down to the floor. And Kathy claims when she was helping George because he had tripped and fallen and hurt himself, he had bite marks on his ankle. Then in January, the lion allegedly moved again, scaring both Kathy and George. And after that incident, George throws the statue away. Okay. Okay. One day in January, Kathy feels a strong male presence this time, embracing her. And then the female presence that she had sensed, which she smells this like, she She describes it as cheap perfume, so both presences the male and the female kind of move toward her, and this pressure of both entities causes her to pass out.
1: That's odd that she was like hugged by two ghosts yeah <laughs> and and I'm kind of wondering if that if that if that is you know maybe some maybe the the mom and dad like the um the defeos. Maybe. Or, like, maybe trying to, I don't know, warn her Mm -hmm. or something? Like, this house has an evil presence in it, and so they're kind of... Maybe. I don't know.
0: Could be. Um, Also in January, George and Kathy see two red glowing eyes staring at them from outside the living room window. They race outside and find cloven-hooved prints in the freshly fallen snow. It's Krampus. Well, they describe it as like a giant pig prince kind of thing. Right. So, and you know, Missy's already mentioned Jody being a pig. Right. Doors reportedly are torn off their hinges and windows are opened in the middle of the night, causing the house to get freezing cold. Except Missy's room. There's one night in particular, they report that her room is the only one that's warm. In fact, it's even hot. So they remove her from the room because they're worried she's going to get overheated. Right. Right. Now, Kathy can't deny what she is feeling. She thinks the home has, is probably haunted. There's something going on here that she can't deny. At first, George tries to rationalize what's happening. He thinks that someone is messing with them. They're, they're vandalizing the home, trying to scare them to get them to leave. And they call Father Mancuso again to ask him to come back out and bless the home again. Now, they, this time they actually get a hold of him. Okay. But when he, he, they tell him what's going on and he refuses to come out. And they, they're like desperate. They're like, we need your help. And then the phone begins to get staticky again and they lose the connection. So instead, Father Mancuso decides he's going to bless the home from afar. That's what I mentioned earlier. So he actually goes to perform a candle mass in the rectory where he lives. Okay. And he soon begins, he soon, He soon begins to to smell this horrible stench. The same stench, it sounds like, that George smells. Human feces. He believes that that indicates that the devil is near.
1: Okay. That's weird.
0: One night, George finds the living room furniture has been moved. And the rug rolled back. Kathy begins levitating. What? Two feet off of the bed, drifting above it as if something is carrying her. George has to grab her at one point and pull her back. And one night, he said that when he grabs her and he pulls her, she falls to the bed. She resembles a 90-year-old woman with wild white hair, wrinkles, and a toothless mouth. Okay, another (laughs) night. A young engineer who works at George's company brings his psychically sensitive girlfriend to the Lutz's home. She says she senses the presence of two lost souls, an old man and an old woman. Now, that doesn't really sound like the DeFeos because they were only in their 40s. Right. Um, She also says she feels the home is built on a burial ground. The young woman goes into a trance and begins speaking in a masculine voice. Now, this is what she said. I'm going to read from page 159. Suddenly, Francine appeared to go into a trance. Out of her mouth came a different voice, heavier, more masculine. I would like to make one suggestion suggestion to you. Most people find out who their spirits are and they find they like them. They don't want them to get lost or to go away. But in this case, I feel this house should be cleared or exercised. The voice coming from Francine began to sound familiar to George. He couldn't quite place it, but he was sure he had heard it before. Somebody's little girl and boys. I see bloodstains. Somebody hurt themselves badly here. Somebody tried to kill themselves or something. So she comes out of the trance. And George later realizes that the voice that was speaking through this woman was Father Mancuso. Oh. Which is really strange. Yeah. At one point, George and Kathy try to bless the home themselves because they can't get the priest to come back out and bless the home. So they're like, fine, we'll do it ourselves. So they begin walking about the house, saying the Lord's Prayer, and going from room to room. Now in the living room, a loud humming begins to interrupt their prayers. And the humming turns into a jumble of voices that seem to engulf them completely. This is quote-unquote jumble of voices that seem to engulf them completely. So they end up speaking to Father Mancuso again, and he tells them that they need to leave. That that there's something more going on here. They need to get out there. But George feels he has invested everything in the home. I mean, he's put all his money into the house. He had intended to work there. And so he didn't have to pay for these little offices that he had, um, these various construction sites. Um, and so he doesn't want to give up the house. okay? So in a fit of rage, George begins yelling at the entities. Now I'm going to read from page 174. All the pressures that have been building within him finally exploded. "'Every goddamn thing we own in the world is in this house,' he stormed. "'I've got too much invested here to give it up like this now—or like that.' The children who were still up cringed and ran to their mother's side. Even Kathy was frightened by a side of George she had never seen. He had the look of a man possessed. Absolutely livid, he stood at the foot of the staircase and screamed so that he could be heard in every room in the house. "'You sons of bitches! Get out of my house!' Then he ran up the stairs to the third floor and into the playroom and threw all the windows open wide. Get out! Get out in the name of God! George ran into the boys' bedroom, then down to the second floor and repeated his actions, shoving up each window in every room, bellowing, Get out in the name of God! again and again. Some of the windows resisted his push and he banged furiously on the frames until they loosened. Cold air poured in from outside and soon the whole house was as frigid as the outdoors. Finally, George was finished. By the time he returned to the first floor, the anger was leaving his body. Exhausted from his efforts and panting heavily, he stood in the center of the living room, tightly clenching and unclenching his fists. While George was on his holy errand, Kathy and the children had been rooted to a spot near the fireplace. Now they came up to him slowly, encircled him. And he lifted his arms and embraced all four frightened people.
1: It sounds like a man that's extremely um, scared in that moment. Mm -hmm. Even though I mean, he's scaring his family, but he's also completely terrified. Yes, because he's everything is out of his control.
0: Right. And later, he begins reading from the Bible, specifically the Book of Genesis, and he claims that the flames from the fireplace begin reaching out to him. And the next day there are red welts that begin appearing on Kathy's body as if she had been burned and they were hot to the touch. Actually Kathy's mother. So George's mother-in-law, mm-hmm. she comes over to check on them and check on Kathy. Cause Kathy's not feeling well. And she touches one of the welts and it burns her finger. It's what she claims.
1: Right.
0: Now George decides he's going to try and do some research. Um, and he ends up finding there was a, book of there's some information about demon names and that if you said the demons names three times in a row that you can call out to them it's like invoking them and taking power over them okay so he calls father mancuso to tell him about this what he's found and the priest yells at him and he's like do not do that that is no that is going to make things worse do not invoke the names of demons so then the phone disconnects no it's 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 implied that the, the demon doesn't whatever listen, this entity is, is, yeah it's like just anytime that the priest is involved it's yeah now danny's fingers actually get slammed in the window Yikes! so I, from what i understand the window shuts slams down on danny's fingers george is trying to pull it up but it will not budge finally the window opens on its own, and Danny's fingers are flattened, so they rush him to the Brunswick Hospital center and allegedly the bones aren't broken how I don't know I don't know how they were not broken
1: okay i some like okay some of this stuff i i can I can believe um there's some parts of this where I'm like, maybe once they left the house and like, you know, you know, this book is being written and there's a little bit more press that they have added more things, added more things, mm-hmm. added more things to it.
0: Okay. So let's talk about the last day and night that they were in the home and what caused them to actually flee. Cause George really wasn't wanting to leave. Right. He right. was invested in, in, he wanted to keep the house. So first, George believes that he saw a dark, shadowy figure hovering over Chris as he slept in his bed one night. This or this last night. Kathy tells him it was just a nightmare, the children are all right. The next morning, George calls Father Mancuso to tell him that they are finally going to leave. And and the reason being here is that they had felt there was too many things that were happening to the children. The children were being put in danger. Before things were happening to Kathy and George. But now Danny has had his fingers smashed, right, in the window. And now Chris has this dark figure hovering over him at night. And Missy's talk, been talking about Jody the pig. So they're finally like, okay, the kids are in danger. We need to leave. Right. Okay. So George ends up getting the dog and he puts him in the van. And he's trying to get everyone in the van. He turns the ignition, but the van won't start. So George lifts up the hood to try and figure out what in the hell is going on with the van when all of a sudden this gust of wind causes the hood to slam shut and rain begins pouring down from the sky. Like he they say that it was like dark clouds were coming and then just the sky just opened up and just started pouring down rain. Hmm. So the family runs back into the house to try and avoid the storm. Of course, they get, you know, soaking wet. The power goes out. And at first, the house begins to get really warm, which is the opposite of what it's been. it was constantly cold in George's opinion. Here now it's getting really warm. So George begins going throughout the house asking God for help. He begins to see green slime.
1: Green slime
0: oozing from the open hole in the door, in like the bed in the playroom door. Green slime what begins is this? to... this, Ghostbusters? I, <laughs> Ectoplasm. Ectoplasm. <I>
1: don't... <laughs> Here you go, here's your snot.
0: <laughs> he watches it as it moves onto the floor in the hallway and down the staircase. So it's really oozing.
1: It's really oozing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and he tries to clean it up with towels. Now, at 10 p.m., I guess the family, because the van wasn't working, they couldn't get it started, the family decides to go to sleep. Okay. Right. At 10 p.m., the house begins to shift from hot to cold. The temperature drops, and George goes to get some logs for the fireplace. He checks in on the children and Kathy, all are asleep, lying face down.
1: Oh, that is freaky.
0: He then decides not to make a fire. Instead, he brings the dog upstairs to the master bedroom. And he actually, like, tethers him to like by the door and crawls into bed with Kathy and Missy and begins crying and asking God for help. Kathy suddenly gets out of bed in a trance. He yells at her to wake up and she goes limp in his arms. He describes her like a rag doll. Then the dog begins shaking violently. And I guess because he was still tethered and he's like acting like he's like, And he begins vomiting. Oh. And so then George is, you know, he untethers him. He He's cleaning up the vomit. And he soon realizes the storm must have stopped because it's very quiet. Almost like the room is in like a vacuum. There's no sound. But then he begins to hear the scraping across the floor. Now directly above him is the boy's bedroom. And he did, it, 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 it's like it, he realizes that that scraping sound is the kid's bed's Danny and Chris's beds scraping back and forth across the floor.
1: Ooh, that's that's creepy.
0: Then the dresser doors open and close on their own. And there's a c- cacophony of voices that begin downstairs and then this marching band music drowns out the voices. Oh marching band yeah he so he's described this before um earlier when i talked about like different voices and sounds and stuff he's heard like this weird marching bound sound before in the middle of the night it's 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 woken him up at 3 15 and now here it is again Mm -hmm. and it's drowning out the voices george can't move or speak he tries to scream no sound comes out the storm begins again with a blinding flash of lightning and a loud clap of thunder. And suddenly, George feels a hooved creature step on him. And he can't see it. I'm assuming he can't see this anything. He can just thing. feel right. it. And then Danny and Chris appear and tell him that there's something in their room. So they've right. woken up because their bed was moving around, yeah, scraping it's your...
1: pyramid heads, scraping across. The <laughs> Lord, (laughs) that's the first thing I thought of when you said that. I was like, oh, it's Pyramid Head from Silent Hill.
0: (laughs) No, so they actually tell him that there's a monster in their bedroom that has no face. Hmm. The dog starts growling and snarling at something on the staircase. And when George is finally able to move, it's like he just musters up this enough energy. He's able to finally get up out of the bed and he, he heaves himself off the bed. And he sees this huge white hooded figure that's pointing at him. It's on the top of the staircase and it's just pointing at him. So, it sounds like a cultist. There's a lot of a cult kind of feeling. Yeah. George tells the boys to take Missy and get outside. He's literally like, carry her down the stairs and get out of here. Uh, I guess the entity, the figure had removed itself from the stairs. I don't know. But he's like, get downstairs, get outside. He then lifts Kathy off the bed and takes her downstairs. He sees the front door is wide open. It's actually been torn off its hinges. Everyone jumps into the van and this time it starts right away. So he hardly backs out of the driveway, tells the house, I never intend to see you again. Okay. In total, the has lasted 28 days in the home. And what's interesting is, is that even when they go to live with Kathy's mom, George and Kathy report experiencing levitation again. So George was very concerned that it had followed them and would continue to do so.
1: Yeah. So um, the only experience I have with amiable horror is like the movies. Yeah. When you read that out loud, and I'm just like thinking as a dad, Mm -hmm. you know, how that would be, that's terrible. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. That's completely terrifying. Being that out of control of your environment and like things you don't know how to mm-hmm. deal with are just, you know, world a whirlwind of supernatural forces is around you doing not like just your all your senses, you know. Yeah. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. So obviously the story has had its fair share of controversy. Many people believe the lutz's made up the story when they realized that they were in over their heads financially. Oh. But I don't think it's that simple. They never returned to the home to get their belongings. George flat out refused to enter the home ever again. Instead, several of George's friends offered to go and get a few things for them, important documents and such that they needed. And George and Kathy continued to make mortgage payments on the house as they allowed reporters and paranormal investigators into the home to see what could be done. Okay. So they were paying for the home, even though they weren't living in it.
1: So, yeah. That that, so, that that idea of them just making up because they're over their heads financially doesn't make sense if they are continue to pay the mortgage after they leave.
0: Mm-mm. Now, ultimately, they did have to give the home back to the bank because right. they just couldn't afford it any longer. And they ended up moving to California, hoping that the evil entity wouldn't follow them across the country. So let's discuss the paranormal investigations that were conducted in the home. In February of 1976, a news crew decided to investigate the alleged haunted house. In one of the documentaries I watched, Laura Didido Didio? Didio? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, She was a young reporter at the time, and she sat with the Lutzes and listened to their story for five hours. She felt that they were being genuine... And truly believe what they were telling her. Um, also, veteran newscaster Marvin Scott was involved. He was part of this news crew. Um, and they invited psychics, clairvoyants, parapsychologists, and demonologists, which included Ed and Lorraine Warren, right. to come investigate the home while the news crew recorded.
1: You know, one thing that... I, I, we, I we love the Conjuring movie. Mm-hmm. One thing that always frustrated me is they never did a... Like an, an Amityville horror, they did
0: a little bit in the second one. In the second Conjuring, at the very beginning, they are in Amityville doing that séance.
1: Yeah, but the, I mean, I want to kind of see the whole.
0: You want? I know, but I thing. think that they felt like it was too overdone.
1: I there's like two, there's a lot of Amityville movies,
0: and Lor- the, the Warrens, were only really involved just for this particular investigation. Right, I understand. So one thing I wanted to note is that Laura, the young reporter at the time. Said She's been interviewed for multiple documentaries, and she said the Warrens never asked for money for the investigation. They only wanted to be reimbursed for gas and tolls, which they would incur on the drive to Amityville.
1: Right.
0: So that, to me, sounds...
1: Relatively general. That
0: that seems like a reasonable thing. Like, pay me for my gas and any tolls that I might incur come in there, but they're not asking for extravagant amounts of money to investigate. So, George met the crew at 112 Ocean Avenue, but he only to give them the keys. He was like, here are the keys. I'm not going in there. And he quickly left. They said as soon as they entered the home, this news crew, they found that it was clearly obvious that the family had left in a hurry. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm going to read from the book's epilogue. Okay. Okay. To provoke the overpowering force said to be within the house, a crucifix and blessed candles were placed in the center of the dining room table. The researchers held the first of three seances at 10.30 p.m. Present around the table were Lorraine Warren, a clairvoyant, her husband Ed, a demonologist, psychics Mary Pascarella and Miss Albert Riley and George Kekaros of the... Psychical Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina. Marvin Scott also joined the group at the table. He was the veteran newscaster I mentioned. During the seance, Mary Pascarella became ill and had to leave the room. In a quaking voice, she said that in back of everything, there seems to be some kind of black shadow that forms ahead and it moves. And as it moves, I feel personally threatened. Miss Riley, in a mediumistic trance, Began gasping, "'It's upstairs in the bedroom. "'What's here makes your heart speed up. "'My heart's pounding.' "'Ed Thanks. Warren wanted to end the seance. "'Miss Riley continued to gasp, "'then quickly came out of her trance "'and back to normal consciousness. "'Then George, the psychic researcher, "'also became violently ill "'and had to leave the table. "'Observer Mike Linder of WNEW-FM "'stated that he f- had felt a sudden numbness, "'a kind of cold sensation.' clairvoyant Lorraine Warren finally voiced her own opinion whatever is here is in my estimation most definitely of negative nature it has nothing to do with anyone who has walked the earth in human form it is right from the bowels of the earth in other words a demon television cameraman Steve Petro- Petrolis Petrolis who had been assigned some scary assignments in combat zones, experienced heart palpitations and shortness of breath when he investigated the sewing room upstairs, where the negative force was said to be concentrated. When Lorraine Warren and Marvin Scott went into that room, they both came out saying that they had felt a momentary chill. Lorraine and Ed Warren also found a source of discomfort in the living room. Miss Warren thought some negative forces were centered in statues and non-living things. That whatever is here, this is a quote, that whatever is here is able to move around at will. It doesn't have to stay here, but I think it's resting here. She also thought that there was something demonic in the inanimate objects. Miss Warren indicated the fireplace and banister on the second floor without being forewarned of their connection with the Lutz's problem. So in other words, she picked up on that before she actually knew what the Lutz's um, story was about. Because this was before the book. Right. Okay, so um, it is during this investigation that the photographer captured the now infamous photo that people have probably seen. It's the child's face looks like he's peeking out from a doorway next to the stairs, okay? People believe it is the image of one of the DeFeo children, either John, age 9, or Mark, age 12. And I must admit, when you look at this photo, especially the one of Mark, and the one taken of the paranormal investigation—it's pretty chilling. So I wanted you to see it here, babe.
1: I don't think I've ever seen this photo. Before.
0: You've never seen it. It's pretty no. famous.
1: So they're saying that this is either John or Mark. And which one? Which one of these photos is John? So
0: that's the twelve-year-old. That's Mark, and then that's the nine-year-old John.
1: And there were no children. Yes, while they the were there.
0: investigators said that there was no children there during this investigation.
1: That's crazy yeah that's crazy if that's if that's legit that's probably i mean that looks like there's an actual kid
0: in that photo. so
1: that's what i'm saying like it looks like a kid's there
0: well if someone was like oh i bet it was one of the other investigators does that look like an adult to you
1: no that looks like an actual child
0: yeah and the height level of too where it would hit on the door doorway and the the height of the staircase to me that looks like a nine or twelve year old yeah probably about four four and a half feet so
1: we're going to put these photos up on Instagram. So yes. I think you should lead with that photo to be honest with you. Okay. <laughs> That's a scary photo.
0: Okay. So also in one of the documentaries I watched, Lorraine said of the home, quote, I hope this is as close to hell as I'll ever get. So, um, world renowned paranormal investigator, Hans Halzer also investigated the home with a trans medium. And they claim the home was built over an ancient burial site, specifically a Native American site. Okay. So you're probably wondering, how did the book come about? Right? right. And this is where things get a little bit controversial as well. Okay. So the let's just say that they decided to contact Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s lawyer, William Weber, because they believe that Ronald could have been influenced by an evil entity. OK, after they, what they had experienced, they thought, well, maybe he really was influenced to kill his family because of this demonic thing. So Weber agreed to meet with them and he claims they made up the entire story of the haunting over a few bottles of wine. Mm. George and Kathy admit that they did speak with him, but after he tried to get them to sign a contract allowing him to as Ronald's lawyer, to take control of the narrative and their home, they decided to sever ties with him. They didn't feel comfortable with what he was proposing. And once word began getting out about what was happening, they felt like they needed to take control of the narrative, that they wanted to tell their version of the story. So this is why they reach out to a book publisher. Okay, that's how author Jay Anson gets involved. Now, people have noted that there are many factual errors in his book. I already mentioned the priest's name was changed and in an affidavit that he claimed that he had never actually been to the home. Also, there was no proof of many of the incidents that were described in the book. When researchers came to the home, they didn't find doors torn off the hinges or green ooze. I mean,
1: when you you said the green ooze, the first thing I thought was, that sounds like bullshit.
0: Yeah. And so the new owners of one... 12 Ocean Avenue, the people that moved in after the Lutzes, claimed they never had any paranormal or strange experiences mm. in the home. Now, despite this, the Lutzes stuck to their story, even to the day they died. They said that some of what is written in the book is an exaggeration, not necessarily by them, but by Jay Anson, I suppose. Okay. But generally, what happened is what is described. They even took lie detector tests and passed them. And despite the success of the book and the subsequent movies about the house, the Lutzes didn't really make that much money on in royalties. Hmm. Now, one other thing I wanted to mention. A few years ago, I watched another documentary called My Deville Horror. I believe it came out in 2013. In the film, Daniel Lutz, who is now 47 years old, he's a UPS driver in Queens, explains what happened to him while he was living there at 112 Ocean Avenue. You can tell that he has been traumatized by what happened, the events and the aftermath of the haunting that he experienced when he was only nine years old. He validates much of what happened in the home. He validates what George said happened. But he also blames his stepfather for what happened. He said that George was A, very abusive, both verbally and physically. But he also was very much involved in the occult. Oh. Yes. He kind of claims that he dabbled in perhaps some Satanism or something occultish. And that was the catalyst for what actually stirred up the energy in the home. Which could make sense.
1: That's interesting.
0: Yes. So... Daniel actually agreed to do the documentary. He wanted to do it to, so that he could tell his story about what had happened. And it was almost like he, he felt like he had, he clearly had a very bad relationship with George and he wanted to set the record straight about who George really was.
1: Yeah, I I, I don't think I watched that with you. Because <laughs> that's interesting to me. We can
0: watch it. It's on Amazon Prime. You can buy or rent it
1: that's interesting that it came out in 2012
0: 2012 okay i just
1: wanted to see what time, what year. i i want to watch it but i'm more inclined to believe a child that was in there rather than the adult i guess i guess maybe just because like if he's saying like you know the you know dad george was really abusive verbally and physically mm-hmm. and then he also was dabbling in the occult mhm you know, that would stir up a lot of stuff. Not to mention with the history uh, the stain of the um the murder. The murder that happened in the house. Murders, yeah. Um so so I'm wondering if did and in maybe you've answered because 'cause you've watched that one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Did George buy the house because the murders happened in it?
0: It's implied, yes. I believe so again I haven't seen it in a while. Okay um and maybe we should, you know, rent it and watch it. Okay. Um at some point this week just so I can refresh my memory. Right. But I I it's kind of implied that yes, he knew the murders were had occurred in that house and it this might be a good opportunity for him to go in and stir up some shit. Yikes. Yeah. So, listeners, what do you think? Do you believe the Amityville Horror was a true haunting or a hoax? Let us know what you think. Email us at contactspiritedspirits at gmail.com.
1: And thanks so much for joining us. We hope you'll continue to listen every week as we talk about spirits while we sip on spirits.
0: Bye. Bye.